Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. It's lovely to have you here with us today. And thank you for uh, taking the time to book online and to come and join us. I want to say a quick hello to all of those who are watching online today as well. And I do want to take a moment, uh, lest I forget, to thank the, the team who are all arrayed down this side of the building, uh, helping make this service possible, uh, not just here, but for those at home as well. Uh, and I do want to encourage you, if you're watching online, to do try and join us at some point in person. I know that the restrictions mean that things are not just quite the same or how we would like them to be, but I am sure that you will be encouraged to be here among the church family uh, if you're able to. Um, just making an observation, we could have had another 20 people in this room today. So please don't uh, hold off booking in or feel like you, you have to sit out for a week with the increased capacity. Uh, we're able to have more people in, so don't hesitate to book your spaces for next week and future weeks. Uh, so we're turning to our Bible reading now, which you will find in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In the run-up to the summer holidays, we're going to take a short series, uh, attempt a short series in this book which should take us about six weeks. And uh, though this book was written some 700 years before Christ, we will see that it is very much Christ-focused. And I hope we'll be encouraged to hear God's Word through Isaiah. So Fiona is going to come and read for us the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 42. Thank you. So it's Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and, and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. 
to many people feel like a scary book to try and get into, uh, mainly because it's so long, 66 chapters. Many people who embark upon reading Isaiah, they get to maybe the end of chapter 6, and from there they start to struggle. It is a book with many difficult things in it. It's, it's often far from straightforward. However, if you think about Isaiah in the big picture, it is actually quite a straightforward book. For the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, the dominant theme is this, judgment. You can't miss it. If you were to read through, there are some, some, some uh, points which, where, where that changes a little. There's, you know, the, the prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, but overwhelmingly, the message of the first 39 chapters is judgment. From the very first chapter, the unfaithfulness of God's people is laid bare, and along with the surrounding nations, judgment lies ahead. Israel's going to be uprooted from their land. They're going to be taken off into captivity in Babylon. But then you come to chapter 40, and the whole tone changes, because from there to the end of the book, the message moves from judgment to hope. And that really is something to help you get a handle on Isaiah. The first half is about judgment. The second half is about hope. Through Isaiah, God speaks words of comfort to His people, promises that they will be rescued from their exile in Babylon. God's going to raise up a foreign leader who will bring them back to their own land. But actually, as you read it, you see that God's God's vision for restoring and rescuing His people is bigger than just moving them from one country to another. The vision of hope in this book of Isaiah extends all the way to a day when there will be new heavens and a new earth, and God's people will dwell with Him in perfect peace and joy forever. This is more than just uh, moving location geographically. This is going to require God to deal with their sin. And as we approach today, chapter 42, here in the midst of, of God's promise of comfort for His people, He's been telling them also about the sorry condition that they're in. And Isaiah, he especially puts his finger on the sin of idolatry. God's people were literally carving pieces of wood, banging pieces of metal to make little idols that they could bow before. And Isaiah, he presses home the stupidity of worshiping false gods, the powerlessness of them to save them from their sins. If you have a Bible open, look at the very last verse of chapter 41. What is God's assessment of these idols? Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And in marked contrast to that, God introduces us to His plan to rescue His people from sin. An altogether different plan from how He would rescue them from captivity in Babylon. Isaiah doesn't present to us here a scene of military might. Instead, he presents to us God's servant. That's the title. He presents God's servant, the most important figure in all of history. 
the promised Messiah. That's how he starts out. Verse 1, it does say, here is my servant, more literally, behold my servant. Sit up and take notice. And throughout this latter part of Isaiah, the servant comes more clearly and more clearly into view. Because there are, there are points in this latter half of this book where there are these songs that emerge about the servant of God. And there are four of them. Some people think there are five, but there are at least definitely four of these servant songs. And that's what we're going to take our time to look at over the six weeks we have leading up to summer. And each of these songs, they emphasize some aspect of the Messiah's character, of his mission. And here's the first of them in chapter 42. Uh, the use of that word servant is, is um, interesting in Isaiah. It, it's used a lot. Sometimes it's used to describe Isaiah himself. Lots of times it's used to describe the nation of Israel. And um, it can make it a little bit tricky to sometimes work out who the servant is at different points in this book. But while Israel was called to be God's servant, if you have read even just a small part of the Old Testament, you will know that they repeatedly fell short of that calling. And I suppose that might particularly be seen in the mission here, because we're told, first of all, um, that God's servant has a mission. God's servant has a mission. And the key word that sums up that mission, you find in the first four verses repeatedly, is the word justice. Justice. So, verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice he will not grow, verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. We hear a lot about justice in our society today. People are campaigning for justice all the time. Churches give themselves to something that is vaguely called social justice. And the way that we tend to use that word justice today, it's quite, it's quite a narrow understanding of justice. We mean, we mean fairness, don't we? We mean someone getting what they deserve, whether it be good or ill. And that is included in the word justice here. How much we do cling to that hope, and we've spoken about this in recent weeks, haven't we? We do cling to that hope that there is such a thing as divine justice that will one day right every wrong that is in this world. But the concept of justice here is much bigger than that, much bigger. It carries the idea of, of things being as they should be, everything being as it should be. That's what God's servant has come to do, to put everything into good and right order. The Messiah will come to overturn the disorder that characterizes our world. He's come to restore the world. 
God's servant is coming to reverse the effects, the destructive effects of sin in the world. And not just for the Israelites. He will be, as it's put in verse 6, a light for the nations. And as we read already, that he will establish justice in the earth and the coastlands or the islands will wait for his law. That, that, that idea is that it extends to the farthest coasts you can imagine. Now, this is what Israel was called to be, to be a shining light in the world that would draw people from every nation to come to where God dwelt and to worship Him. But they failed to live up to their calling as God's servants. And instead, what did they do? So often they despised the foreign nations around them. And in their unfaithfulness to God, they did the very opposite of drawing people in. People were not attracted to come. They were appalled and stepped back. But this servant is different. And we are to see that he lives up to everything that God's people failed to live up to. What kind of a savior must this be who could bring about such a transformation? Who could bring forth justice? Who could restore the whole world to being as it should be? Well, let me leave that question hanging for a moment and show you that this mission that the servant has is not just on this big global scale but is actually a work in individuals as well. You see this in verse 7, where we are, uh, it's as if we're listening in on what God says directly to His servant. He will be a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, bring out from the prison those who sit in darkness. This is a mission that rescues individuals. It recognizes and rescues people. And this is the diagnosis of all of us here. Jesus Christ taught that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And sin is anything that we do, anything that we say, anything that we think that, that makes us more important than God. And he says, every time we do that, we demonstrate that we are enslaved. We are bound to a slave master called sin. And that defines every one of our lives, enslaved to sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, sin is described as blinding people. It means that we cannot see clearly. It shrouds us in darkness. It cuts us off from coming to God who dwells in perfect light. This is the greatest problem of all. Humans made to know God, to dwell with God, and yet by our sin are so far from Him. 
enslaved to sin. And yet the servant, what's he coming to do? Open the eyes that are blind. Bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. What kind of a Savior must this be who could deliver such a rescue, who could rescue sinners from this kind of harsh enslavement? Well, look at how God speaks of the servant in verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is much more, uh, this won't mean anything to some people, I guess. This is much more than God looking up the yellow pages to find a servant or doing a Google search for servant suppliers nearby. This is not a servant for hire. God delights in this chosen servant of His. God has committed to personally uphold His servant. And how will He do that? It's in the next line. I've put my spirit upon Him. You know, this scene, those opening three lines of this chapter, they come together somewhere else in the Bible. You find it in Matthew chapter 3. Listen to these words. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These words of Isaiah 42 are fulfilled on that day, shown to be the case. The Son of God, the Spirit descends upon Him, and the Father says, in effect, behold my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Here is the one who can rescue sinners and bring them to God. Here is the one who can redeem the world, save it from its disorder and its chaos. And as you follow the story of Jesus through the Gospels, and we'll see more of this as we work through Isaiah's songs, Jesus' life is heading to this great crescendo when He suffers on the cross. He accomplishes the mission, and He does it by dying. Later, the Apostle Paul wrote these words about Jesus, which, which pick out these two aspects of this mission. Just listen for this in these words. You know, this, this rescue of the world, this deliverance of individuals from their sin. Listen to this from Colossians 1. This is verse 19. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If you are a Christian here today, 
then I want you to pause and just marvel at the scale of this thing. Jesus Christ is the central figure in all of human history. He is God who has come as a man to save the world. Come to save you from your sin. And you find that when you trusted in Jesus Christ, that while everything seemed to be about you, you find that actually you're part of this cosmic rescue plan that extends beyond you, that extends beyond us, and is this great plan of Christ to reconcile the creation to Himself. You're part of a truly cosmic rescue plan, one that God has designed from before the world even existed. I've enjoyed thinking about verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, because you notice there that the speech changes. It changes from God speaking about His servant. In verses 6 and 7, God speaks directly to His servant. It's as if we're eavesdropping on this conversation that goes on between father and son, a conversation that was taking place forever with this plan to save, this plan to redeem a people for the Son. And here, this agreement, the settled will of God, which has been for all eternity, and it includes you, Christian brother or sister. And if you're not a Christian listening today, what other hope is there that this world with all of its pain and disorder and injustice, what hope do we find in the midst of all of that, trusting in whatever we find to hand, whether it's governments, whether it's personal resources, whether it's having a strong will, whether it's getting the right medication? What is it that is going to bring us genuine hope that justice can come? You'll find it nowhere else than in the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, meet my servant, your Savior. Let's look at the servant's heart as we have here. We've seen the servant has, has a mission, and, and here we see something of his heart, especially in verses 2 and 3. Uh, the servant is not going to come as some uh, military rescuer. He's not going to come with great fanfare, no grand displays, no attention-grabbing headlines. How does it describe here? Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A quiet, gentle ministry. And that's confirmed, isn't it, by the description of what that ministry will look like in verse 3, how he's going to interact with people. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning or a smoldering wick 
he will not quench. This is among the most beautiful and warm things that can ever be said about God's Messiah. Because it gets right to the heart of what kind of Savior he is. The reed. Typically used as some kind of support structure. I suppose maybe if you would think about how you might use a bamboo cane in your garden. But when these reeds became bruised, when they began to lose their structural integrity, well, they weren't much use. The only thing they seem to be good for is breaking them over your knee and throwing them in the fire. The faintly burning wick, the smoldering wick, we probably have more experience of that, don't we? You imagine the candle, and it's maybe, uh, maybe you've blown it out, and there's that, that afterglow, and all it does is it just produces smoke that stinks up the room, doesn't it? And it's begging. What, what is it begging for you to do? You, you're supposed to do this and pssst. That's the picture here. But this Savior, God's servant, he sees the things that are weak, and rather than cast them into the rubbish heap like we might, he binds up the bruised and the injured. He breathes fresh fire into the faintly burning wick. He doesn't snuff it out. And how we need to be reminded of this all the time. How often have you hidden away from God? Run away from the presence of Jesus Christ because of your weakness? How often have you felt ashamed at your weak faith, at your failure yet again? And in those moments, we so easily resign ourselves to thinking that Jesus Christ would never want anything to do with a weakling like me. Or maybe you've never believed in Jesus Christ. And this is the reason. The brokenness that you carry with you, the bruises of the past, the doubts that flood in, the shame that you carry. Oh, these verses of Scripture say to every one of us today, come to Jesus and you will never, never, never be rejected by Him on the basis of your weakness. Never. That's who He has come for. Come in all of your weakness, all of your pain, and he's promised to receive you, to accept you, to comfort you. There is a sense in which Jesus is actually only a savior for bruised reeds, for faintly burning wicks. Because the one who comes to Jesus confident in their own strength, their own ability, Jesus really has nothing to offer. But when we see ourselves as we are, broken, 
sinful, in need of repair, in need of forgiveness, then we find that this servant of God is the one whom we need. That same language of bruising and faintly burning, it's actually repeated uh, in the next verse. It's very hard to make this clear in English, but but let me show you. So, you see verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Um, And it's almost like, well, how can we be sure of that? How can we be sure that he's able for that? Because verse 4 literally says, he will not faintly burn or be bruised till he has established justice in the earth. See what he's saying here? He's saying this servant's life will be perfectly sustained. Jesus' life was one of perfect obedience to his Father in everything. He never had an off day. He never got out of bed on the wrong side. He never had to confess a sin. And that life that he lived in all of its perfection, he lives in the place of the bruised and the faintly burning lives, the life we couldn't live. He has lived so that if we trust in him, what is his becomes ours. This is how he's able to rescue the bruised, useless reed, the faintly burning wick that is good for nothing because he provides everything that they don't have. He is given, uh, look at this language in verse 6, he's given as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. You know, God made covenants with his people. They were promises that he would be their God, that he would be with them, that, that they would truly belong to him as his treasured possession. And here this reaches its fulfillment in Jesus, God's servant. He is the promise that you belong to God. Wherever you're from, whatever your history, this is for you. Jesus Christ, God's servant, is whom you need to trust if you're going to be right with God. And it's as if here Isaiah is saying, keep looking to the servant. If you need some some reminder of the security that you have, that you belong to God, look to the servant. He's been made the promise for you. And what a security to know that this is how Jesus feels about his people. This is his manner towards us. However weak and bruised you might feel, he's done everything for you. He brings you into a spiritually safe place. One last thing to close. I think a common question might be, why? I mean, why would God bother? I mean, if I was God and I saw how utterly rotten the world I'd created had become, I think I would surely give up on it. Maybe rip it up and start again. And can we trust that God isn't going to do that? Well, you see, the success of God's servant in his mission is entirely wrapped up in just who God is. Look at how the Lord is described in verse 5. 
the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I mean, one of the ways you could sum all of that up is when it comes to this world, God is invested. The world is not some side project for God. This is not some hobby that he does in his spare time. He is utterly invested in what he has made. And we can trust him. And that is the thrust of the final couple of verses that we read, verses 8 and 9. We can trust him because he keeps his word. In contrast to those idols that we mentioned earlier who are silent, they have, they have nothing to say. They offer no security. There is nothing reliable about them. They can give no insight into the past, present, or future. They are dumb. And yet when it comes to God, particularly verse 9, he says, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. It's as if he says, what I've said before has come to pass. You can trust me. What I have said already, it has come to pass, hasn't it? And here I am now declaring something new. And well, here we are, more than two and a half thousand years farther down the road, and we can say, thank you, Lord, that what you said to your people through Isaiah all those centuries, even millennia ago, came true. You were faithful to your promise. The servant came. The servant was everything that God promised he would be. And that same confidence comes to you and us today. If God has been so trustworthy, you can trust Him with your future. And the call to every one of us today is to deliberately, by faith, place ourselves in the hands of God's servant. To trust Him to confess our sins, to follow Him with everything we have. As I've said from here many times, what else is worth spending your life for than to meet and know and follow Jesus Christ, the one whose faithfulness in the past is the guarantee of His faithfulness forever? Well, let's conclude by saying the words of the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.